I'm not suggesting that uh, I haven't maybe missed something, but uh, I've tried to cast in our discussion, you can see how I broadened it out of the Hebrews uh, material. Um, this would be another passage that uh, would fall in the same net, as it were. Second Peter uh, 2, 20 and 21. The um, reference, you see, is, is um, made to those, they're identified as having escaped the corruptions of the world, and uh, in that escape that takes place through knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, then they are further described as such, having this saving knowledge uh, of, of, of Christ, uh, they become entangled in uh, these matters, the miasmata of the world, the corruptions of the world, and they fall. And the point then um, is made that their end is worse than their beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of night righteousness than knowing to have turned away from it, turned their back on it almost literally. Made a 180 degree uh, reverse from what's described here as the holy commandment uh, given to them. Um, so here you see we have those, um, just underline again, those who have escaped by knowing the way of righteousness, having known it, turn away from it, turn their backs on it. So that would be an, another example. So just to round off um, this, uh, the, the sin in view in our passages, uh, we can say... Uh, that at its root, it's a matter of self-conscious, calculated hatred of God. Hatred of God as God. Hatred of God as God the Savior. And seems a further uh, to involve that despite better knowledge, it involves... Uh, Deliberately, willfully putting God in the place of Satan and putting Satan in the place of God. Making, if you will, of Christ the Antichrist. Tentatively, we, uh, to, to help clarify, perhaps we could make this observation, that the sin in view is the sin that Paul would have committed, that Paul would have committed on the Damascus Road if he had not been, as he puts it, obedient to the vision from heaven. Acts 26.19 If he had continued on to Damascus with his church-persecuting mission. 
but that, that's a bit speculative. I'm not, I wouldn't want to uh, lean on that very, uh, real heavily, but just uh, as perhaps pointing us in that direction, in, in the right direction. Very briefly, an eighth point here. We should not lose sight, or we should, I want to take the occasion here to, to reinforce what we brought out uh, in our discussion earlier, and that is the corporate dimension. We're talking about individuals and individuals who fall away. We can't lose sight of that, but we should not lose sight of, of, of the corporate responsibility that is involved, particularly the verses that we looked at in Romans 14, 15, and 1 Corinthians um, 8, 11. Uh, the, Paul's admonition for us to be concerned about the brother for whom Christ died. So that there is, uh, we can say then, in, involved in these passages, uh, that we be careful, that, whole, that all in the church must be careful that in conduct we do not dispose others in the church, others who are brothers to this sin. All must be concerned then that we do not, any one of us, become an ultimate stumbling block, as it were. Yes, well, you know, that's, I mean, and that bears its own, re, uh, own, um, own culpa, I mean, and, and that's the culpability lies there. But Paul does, just in the issues of, uh, you know, the meat being offered to idols, see this as, as uh, uh, warns against behavior that, could, that could, create, could be the catalyst, I guess you might say, to that kind of reversal. Although I feel the weight of your question. Uh, ninth, and as kind of a concluding um, wrap-up on our work here. In, the, in our passages in Hebrews, but as they would have um, the, the, these correlative materials throughout the New Testament, the writer issues a warning against the sin of irreversible apostasy. He issues that warning again as a live danger for the whole church, for every confessor, every believer in that sense, everyone who makes confession. He issues the warning against a sin and I want to accent this again, a sin which each believer, without any exception, a sin to which each believer is exposed, each believer is subject. And perhaps we could bring into our discussion uh, at this juncture then, um, maybe it should have been said earlier, uh, but this observation that... that uh, kind of a parallel or analogous observation that I think has some weight. To deny that these warnings or this liability applies in the case of the regenerate 
because it's not possible for them to fall, to deny the applicability of these warnings to the regenerate seems to me akin to saying that Christ was not truly tempted because he did not really struggle, that he did not really struggle with sin because it was not possible for him to sin. And more broadly, uh, it seems to me to partake of, 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 of the same kind of reasoning, uh, maybe not so much theoretically, but practically found in, 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 in reform circles, that there is no need to evangelize because the elect are bound to be saved. The point, again, you see, is that the certainty of the outcome, and if I have been heard in, after all has been said now, uh, in, in any way uh, undermining that, uh, then I have failed here and I have to go back and, 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 and correct formulation. The certainty of the outcome is not the issue, but the issue is this. The certainty does not make the means, perseverance, unnecessary. And when we have grasped this, how much, really, how everything depends on perseverance. For those in the wilderness, everything depends on perseverance then it becomes an urgent and pressing question generated just by these materials of the writer. How are we, how is the church, how are believers, how are those who have made Christian confession, how are we to persevere? Where are we to find the resources? And when we have felt something, we can say, of the urgency of this question, then it's time for us to turn our attention, the writer would have us turn our attention to what he says about Jesus as the great high priest, which is where we want to be now for the rest of our time, Roman numeral two. <clears throat> but uh, being in the wilderness uh, still, before we uh, do that, I would like section E uh, to make a couple of uh, several concluding observations uh, before we um, um, begin addressing the theme of the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus. But we should, uh, before, uh, before we leave, make sure any concerns come up here. Yes. No, you weren't. I think uh, your uh, look at your outline. Your um, the the C that we were working at was a lowercase C under D. Yes, right. That that's it. Uh, this is um, we are now raising rising to a higher level of outline here. Uh, and, and now our, our discussion will uh, broaden somewhat. I don't think too scattered. I, I want to uh, form, uh, address issues in a number of directions, looking in a number of directions that have to do with the eschatology of um, this whole matter of eschatological structure. 
uh, and there are five points that I want to make under these concluding observations. <clears throat> First, I want to accent um, a point that we, uh, again, a point that we are, were already drawing out at, the, at much early in our discussion, and that is that the the uh, the eschatological outlook of the writer, especially the way he develops it, it bears very directly on the experience of the readers. The writer is not involved in some kind of eschatological uh, speculation. It's not simply a matter of theoretical analysis. It's not even a matter of doctrinal teaching, uh, if we understand that doctrine as something that would leave their lives untouched. Now, to truly appreciate this experiential component of the existential, if you will, we need to have more of the consciousness that the earliest Christians had, and that is the consciousness of living in eschatological times, of listening to in these last days when they hear that, heard that really believing it, that they were in the last days in the eschatological denouement of history. You see, it's just that consciousness that has too often been lacking down through the history of the church. And perhaps in ourselves. It's just that consciousness that the earliest apostolic generation of Christians had uh, that gets lost in the ever-present tendency in the history of the church, it seems, to de-eschatologize the present. If I could coin a verb. To de-eschatologize. That is, to always hold eschatology off at, a, at an arm's distance, as it were, in the future. But you see, for a last day's mentality, which is the mentality, let me just say here, I want to em I'll emphasize this a little bit further on again, the mentality that is to be that of every believer between the resurrection and the return of Christ, between the exaltation and return of Christ. For a last day's mentality, the present situation of the church can very easily seem puzzling even disconcerting, uh, particularly for a last day's mentality for the church to continue in the wilderness, to continue in a state of trial and testing, that can easily create a special difficulty for such a last day's outlook. You see, especially since the, the, the triumph of Christ dating from the ascension is in the past. As the writer says, 2.9, we see Jesus crowned, already crowned with glory and honor. Now, as some of you will be aware, um, at least, uh, rather widespread today in biblical studies and New Testament studies is uh, the view that Hebrews is directed toward a crisis that develops in the church 
by the delay, because of the delay of the parousia. That Hebrews is directed toward a crisis that has come about by the delay, the failure of Christ to return. A crisis that results because the actual course of history on this thesis is contrary to the expectation of an imminent return. Now, without at all here endorsing this thesis, it's in fact to be fundamentally challenged, but without endorsing the thesis and the overall conception of apostolic history and teaching that it involves, it does, you see, contain an element of truth. That is, this last day's consciousness, uh, the sense of living in end times that is characteristic of the Christianity that we encounter in the New Testament. Now just to think that uh, through a little bit um, further, uh, particularly the existential uh, implications of that. The way the writer looks at the present situation of his readers, the way he addresses them, brings into view the central problem he's concerned with. So that without it all buying into the, to, to the critical delay of the parousia um, theorizing, it is still, I think, the, the suggestion is quite plausible that the book of Hebrews is directed to a situation, or if it's not, uh, if it's... Um, a circular letter addressed to a plurality of situations. Hebrews is directed to situations where there are some now who have confessed Jesus as the Christ. That is, they have confessed him as the fulfillment of prophecy, as the inaugurator of the new messianic age. We're saying Hebrews... Uh, uh, is, is, is quite plausibly seen to be directed to a situation where there are those who have made this uh, confession of Christ as the Messiah, but who have now become uncertain because they are unable to reconcile continuing persecution and testing with this confession. They can't comprehend that. They can't get that together. How come? Now that the long-promised Messiah has arrived and is exalted to the right hand of God, how come suffering, persecution? Uh, it's a situation then where, as Voss puts it, uh, I don't know if I should say neatly or not, but it's, it's memorably anyway, he sees it as a situation where many are suffering with an acute eschatologism. Maybe came across that. Um, that has to be uh, a neologism um, of some kind. Well, I guess it's not too neo anymore. But um, that's on page twenty twenty one of his of his teaching volume. Uh, in other words, he's using that ter uh, that term to uh, to uh, 
to try to get a hold of this last day's mentality, but a last day's mentality uh, that has now come into perplexity uh, and is uh, succumbed to acute eschatologism. Uh, in, in other words, uh, to carry on that that um, uh, that in that vein, what what is uh, what the writer is concerned with then is an exhaustion. And now we can tie this into much of the discussion or to the area of discussion we were just having, an exhaustion that gives rise to apostasy as a very live temptation. Give up in exhaustion. In other terms, uh, an exhaustion that tempts to unbelief, unbelief because of the failure of what they had expected to take place. Uh, Just to generalize uh, on that a bit, as as Voss does, and I think this is very perceptive and instructive, you see, the problem here is a constant problem uh, for the people of God in almost every place in, in time prior to the final consummation, and that is the veiledness, the veil that lies over the messianic glory. Um, that was true, you see. Uh, that, that veil is there during uh, his earthly ministry, his, his being during the period of his humiliation on earth, and it's a veil that now continues to exist because of his absence in exaltation. The messianic glory veiled on earth and absent in heaven. That always carries with it the the, the temptation then uh, toward one or other form of religious externalism. Uh, The craving for the visible that I can hang on to, as that can be found across a a a wide spectrum that, that runs, say, uh, from Roman Catholicism on the one hand to its, its understanding of the sacrament. See that? Jesus is being sacrificed there right in front of your eyes to uh, at least certain sectors of the, uh, not all, but certain sectors of the charismatic movement on the other end. Um, the, 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 uh, to put it in positive terms, the church is called to walk by faith and not by sight. And... Um, that, uh, uh, that, that the situation can uh, produce then the struggle. The situation then in, in, in Hebrews, if we can envision it further, is a situation where there are a, a number, apparently a significant number, who are asking in effect, what difference does it really make that God has in these last days spoken to us in His Son, as the writer says? What difference does that make? that God has finally spoken. What difference is there really between, to put it in other terms now, uh, what's being asked in effect, what difference is there between life under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? So, Hebrews is properly seen uh, as concerned, at least in a large measure, concerned to, to, to minister to this attitude, to answer this attitude, uh, to show that there is a difference between old and new, to explain that difference. 
the writer is concerned, in other words, to do justice to the new, decidedly eschatological nature of the period that has come about in Christ. And yet, uh, as he's concerned to, to, to accent, to make clear uh, what has already taken place in Christ and its eschatological character, uh, he, uh, at the same time, he does not uh, in any way eclipse uh, the, the centrality of the present ordeal of the believer. So as we uh, said it earlier, and we can just uh, bring it in here to, to pinpoint things, the writer is uh, concerned to clarify the combination or the connection between the triumph of Christ and the testing of the church. And there can be very uh, few outlooks, perspectives on what the Christian religion is all about. Uh, that is, is, is more basic than doing that to clarify the relationship between the eschatological triumph that has already taken place in Christ and the testing of the church that continues. Or triumphalism is right. yeah. 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 Well, as as you're posing your question, I think there's a couple of dimensions there. I think that um, um, I think that the 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 strongest um, the the strongest antidote to um, um, the wrong sort of speculating about the eschatological future is to emphasize, in, in our own code words among ourselves here, the, the already. Because I think you see that, uh, that, that uh, millennial, without trying to settle all the issues of, of the millennium here, in fact, I, I do want to say something about how Hebrews bears on that a little bit later on. But um, without wanting to... Um, just dismiss all that discussion, I think that um, a great deal of preoccupation, wrong sort of preoccupation on millennial constructions in the future comes by a failure to appreciate the already uh, of, of the New Testament eschatology. That where that is laid hold of, um, then uh, the, the, uh, the, well, maybe, I don't know if this is a helpful way of putting it. Um, you see what, what traditional millennial uh, discussion is in effect involved in doing is looking toward the future and making a distinction between a provisional eschatology, eschatological era, a golden era either before or after the return of Christ, but still future, and then what is not provisional or ultimate beyond that. But you see, I think that when you see that the provisional eschatological order has already arrived, then I think that breaks down at least um, the, um, the, uh, uh, 
the intensity of concern to try to, uh, uh, to, to project everything into the future. Now, there, I heard, the, go ahead, speak. Right, right, that's right. Yeah, that just, or, you know, you, 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 you raised the practical question and then I started wandering all over the place again. But I think just to, to take a congregation and, and just go through the New Testament passages and, you know, the last days date from the resurrection of Christ, not his return. Yes? Uh, yeah, DS, in other words, uh, the tendency, and it's, it ties into the question, the tendency by, I was just coining that language, uh, the tendency to, to lose sight of our present. I talked about de-eschatologizing the present life of the church. In other words, to lose sight of the fact that the last days have already arrived. To deny the eschatological nature of the present situation. That's what I have in, in mind by de-eschatologize. Yep. So Voss's statement about acute eschatologism, that's a, that's a pathological state yes. of futurism. Yes. Well, yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, I think he, he's wanting to apply it to the situation of not being able to factor persecution into uh, the last day's mentality that seems to have no place for uh, suffering. In other words, he's addressing a tendency toward a kind of triumphalism. In other words, they want the triumph of Christ, they don't want uh, the suffering that goes along with it. Yes, see, I think that's the seeing of faith. Yes. And they know that because the gospel tells them that. A second point, uh, very uh, much more uh, quickly here. Uh, and my concern here is to, is to look at the, uh, at the place of Hebrews in the whole... Um, it's placed within the whole range of New Testament teaching. I think you're aware that we continue to live in times. I was just spending the time yesterday looking at a book that's just been published by John Ruman from over at the Lutheran Seminary on variety and diversity in the New Testament. And the issue of whether or not there is an essential harmony or unity to New Testament teaching. Uh, continues to be alive. And I just want to accent here is that uh, the eschatology that we have uh, been working at uh, is in line uh, with the, uh, is, in, is, is in harmony with all of the other eschatological teaching that we have in the New Testament. The writer shares the same fundamental eschatological outlook that we see, for instance, in Jesus' kingdom proclamation the pattern that we have there of already and not yet, the, the, the same already not yet structure that we see in, in Jesus' kingdom proclamation uh, or in Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit and resurrection, um, the, uh, the emphasis that the kingdom or the, or the coming eon is both present and future. I'll pick up question in, in just uh, a minute. 
we can say uh, we don't want just to homogenize. Uh, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. I'm accenting the, the unity of New Testament eschatological teaching, not its, its uniformity. We can say that in Hebrews, um, there is a, a distinctive attention to the structure, to eschatological structure, uh, particularly we have in Hebrews a, a distinctive uh, address as to how, if you will, already and not yet hang together. How present and future eschatologically uh, cohere. Uh, the bonding of those uh, two together uh, is addressed in Hebrews in a distinctive way. Um, so that anticipating uh, what are the next level of discussion that we, or the next area of discussion that we want to get into, um, so far as the work of Christ is concerned and the structure of that work, he wants to show how the past, what was done on earth, culminating in the death of Christ, how that, how what is presently taking place in heaven, where Christ is in the sanctuary, and how, along with that past and present, what will happen in the future when he appears a second time for salvation, how that uh, hangs together and, and conditions uh, the situation of the church. Or, uh, we can bring it in here, 13.8. He's concerned to show that Jesus Christ is ho autos, the same, yesterday, today, forever. Um, the... Uh, and by the way, let me just observe here in, in passing that uh, we ought not to take this verse as it is, uh, I think, fairly often done uh, in systematic theology as a proof text for the divine immutability of Christ. That, of course, would be taught in Scripture, but the point of this is not so much divine immutability but Christ is the same in the sense of his steadfastness, his faithfulness as high priest. That is how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as he is our faithful high priest. Now, to touch on an area that we could have spent a, a, a lot of time, um, a lot of uh, class time on, in chapters 8 through 10 particularly, not limited there, but um, um, coming more prominently into the picture, uh, very central in the argument there is the distinction between heaven and earth. And as that involves then a typology, a typology that operates between earthly shadow and heavenly reality. Earthly shadow and heavenly reality. 8.5 and 9.24. Now it has 
uh, frequently been maintained in the modern period of biblical studies, thinking uh, post, by modern I mean enlightenment, post-enlightenment, uh, particularly earlier in this century, maybe less so now, but still um, uh, by no means uh, uh, vanishing from the scene. It, it's maintained that this vertical heaven and earth configuration is the author's effort to vaporize, as we might put it, the historical experience of the readers. In other words, it's the writer's, by, when I say vaporize historical experience, it's, it's the writer's concern, it, it represents the writer's interest to turn his readers away from history and to orient them to certain eternal, odd-temporal ideals. But what he's concerned to do is to, is, is to uh, direct their attention beyond history uh, to a realm of meaning, an ahistorical uh, reality uh, as their ultimate concern. And... Um, uh, not always, but frequently, this, this proposal or this, this construal um, of the writer's intention is, is uh, bound up with the notion of, uh, that this happens in view of the profound his, historical disappointment uh, because of the failure to, of the parousia to occur. History disappoints, so the writer's tactic is to... Um, um, to help us forget history. Or in other terms, as it can be argued, what the writer is, is doing in, this, in his heaven and earth um, distinction, what, it, what is happening here is, is, is that he's translating the gospel into the categories of Alexandrian Hellenistic dualism or uh, perhaps, or alternatively, Gnostic mythology. It's here, for instance, then, that the question of Philo's influence, the influence of um, uh, the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, theologian, uh, contemporary to the time of the New Testament, slightly earlier, um, that comes into discussion. Uh, and I won't go into de further detail here. You can still, uh, even with... Uh, some datedness, although it has just been recently updated, Guthrie's introduction um, will, uh, will fill you in on, on that discussion further. What I do want to go on here uh, to say is this. Such constructions um, can, uh, limiting it themselves to, some, to certain textual materials, uh, appear plausible, but Eventually, they can be seen, they, uh, they certainly are seen to, to run counter to what we have seen and what I think any careful reading of Hebrews will show. And that is that the writer has an eschatological outlook that is clearly expressed in the opening words of the document, that God has in these last days spoken in the Son, 
And what goes along with that is the deepened historical consciousness of the writer that, uh, that permeates uh, the entire document, the entire discussion to the end. He has not, by the time he gets to chapter, chapters uh, 8 and following, 8 through 10, forgotten what he said at the beginning. In other words, the typology that we encounter in the middle section, the distinction heaven and earth, that is used, that is employed within a more basic contrast. The heaven-earth distinction, we're saying, uh, is not properly understood, properly addressed, unless it is seen to be embraced by the distinction between old and new covenant. Old and new is the, is the distinction that encompasses the distinction between heaven and earth. And in fact, that distinction between old and new covenant is woven right through these passages. Uh, for the writer, there is the heavenly Jerusalem. And there is an abiding city. But that heavenly Jerusalem, that abiding city, is the Paulus Melusan, the city which is to come. 13, 14. And here again, um, if you haven't already had an opportunity to do so or, and come to appreciate it, I recognize that just talking to several of you, you have just in, in terms of the, your paper projects uh, gotten into it. But Voss's discussion in his teaching book, pages 55 through 65, is, is so helpful on this point, showing how you cannot polarize the vertical and the horizontal, the, the heaven and earth and the historical eschatological outlook. Um, there's um, another aspect of things that we can touch on uh, just briefly here. Remember at the very outset, uh, well, you won't remember, so let me um, uh, remind you, the um, specific historical situation of the readers, you know, the standard things you answer by introductory questions, um, where they lived, what were uh, um, the relationship between the author and them, so on. That is in the, quite indistinct. You really uh, can't reconstruct it from the document. That is, where, what, were, what exactly were their first century Mediterranean world conditions? We know they were somewhere in the first century Mediterranean world, but where more exactly is, is what eludes us. Now again, that is not an indication, as some have wanted to argue, that's not an indication uh, of a lack of historical concern on the part of the writer, as if he is, is more interested in, in timeless in the sense of ahistorical uh, outlook and truth. Rather, the 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 the, the indistinctness, the vagueness on the historical specifics, I think we ought rather to say, results from the profound historical consciousness that the writer has. It's just because of his historical consciousness, not in spite of it, 
and that he wants to impress that historical consciousness on his readers. And what he wants his writers to see is that the controlling outlook on their situation, the controlling historical outlook on their situation, in all of its detail, what he wants them to understand is is a look at their situation in all of its detail, the controlling historical outlook is not ultimately shaped by those details. In other words, what determines who they are, where they are historically, is not the economic, social, cultural, political, religious factors that are unique uh, to the first century Mediterranean world. But the controlling perspective, historical perspective, is that which is determined by the work of Christ and its historical pattern, past, present, and future. In other words, uh, to put it even more existentially, it's not the particular complex of social political factors that bring about the hardship and the persecution that they're enduring as they see it, uh, that, that determines their situation. But he wants to see, he wants them to have a larger vision that is determined by the work of Christ. What they must understand, first of all, about their situation in all of its detail, if they are to understand it at all, what they must understand, first of all, is that they are living between the times, as we would say, between the first and second coming of Christ. In other words, they are in the wilderness and all that that entails. I think that uh, consideration has a bearing on ourselves, particularly as we find our si- times in uh, find ourselves in, in a situation as we have experienced it for uh, some time now of, of of quite revolutionary worldwide change. There is in that then the temptation uh, to see only the uniqueness of our own era, our uh, more immediate historical circumstances. There can be the tendency then to become so absorbed, so dominated by the factors that constitute uh, the current situation, more or more or less current, that they begin uh, to determine the horizon of our experience, our historical outlook. They control our course of action and perhaps uh, can even bring us to the point of trying to accommodate um, the gospel to the situation that we arrive at by our cultural analysis or critique. Um, There's a danger then that we lose sight of the character of the church's existence in the world. The situation, uh, to put it more positively, we must orient ourselves the way, and the church today must orient itself the way the writer of Hebrews does. The fundamental thing, the first thing that we must understand about our situation, from whatever uh, 
culture or civilization we would find ourselves coming from in the last half of the 20th century. The first thing we have to understand about ourselves and our situation, as well as the Mediterranean world of the first century and all situations that lie in between and thereafter, is that it is the wilderness situation where once Christ at the end of the age has been offered for the sins of many and shall appear a second time unto salvation for all those who eagerly await him. Or as Paul puts it in very similar categories um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, we are those who serve the living God as we await for his son Jesus from heaven, his son who he raised from the dead. So uh, it, it's in terms of that framework that the writer wants, the writers of the New Testament want us to understand that the gospel is adequate to all historical situations because it is the gospel for this historical situation that underlies and embraces all historical situations. So we're saying something like this, that in the final analysis, uh, the best approach to the immediate problems, to immediate problems, is the long-range point of view. The best approach for solving immediate problems is the long-range point of view. Well, I pushed ahead there a little bit. We can pick up... Um, I, have one other, I have one further point that I want to make here, and we can pick up anything, any questions or observations you want to make about this, and then we'll, we will be able to move ahead into the, um, our work on the high priestly ministry of Christ.